Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm Russ McCullough, and I am the Wayne Angel Chair here at... Ottawa University and have the Gortney Institute with this podcast. And I have my co-host here, Dr. Justin Clark, who's a philosophy professor. And we're going to talk about something kind of interesting. He went all matrix on me when we were trying to figure out a topic. And how about, are we living in a simulation? Something along those lines. What are you thinking here, Dr. Clark? Uh, so I thought we'd discuss an article by the philosopher Nick Bostrom. Nick Bostrom, okay. And he put forward an argument that's hence been called the simulation argument. What year are we talking for this Nick Bostrom guy? Early to mid 2000s. Okay. So like 2007, I think. Okay. Um, and Nick Bostrom is just uh, a really fun philosopher to read anyway. He has a bunch of good arguments about, uh, interesting arguments about why it would be horrible for us if we found extraterrestrial life. And he focuses a lot on, uh, like these catastrophic cases. For, okay. Yeah. Weird, like weird stuff like the coronavirus or something taking over the world. Yeah. Yeah. Something like Maybe that. Something like crazy. Hypothetical. He also wrote a book on the dangers of super intelligent AI. Okay. Which, but my favorite argument of his is the simulation argument. And so what he starts out with are a few premises that seem like they have wide acceptance in the philosophical fields uh, of which they are respective. Okay. Um, and the first is a, a premise from the philosophy of mind. And it essentially says that a mind is just the same thing as software. That is what the mind does is compute in the same way that hardware performs software uh, operations. Okay. Analogy so, of the mind to software. Okay. That the mind is essentially a computer. Right? Uh, now you can make a computer out of anything. Right. We can make a computer out of silicon. We can make, uh, you can make a computer out of rolls of toilet paper. Uh, you can make a Turing machine interpreter out of rolls of toilet paper. Okay. It'll take really long to operate, but you can still do it. Okay. So one of the most fertile approaches in philosophy of mind. And, you know, if you talk to somebody who's a neuroscientist, the way they treat the mind, is that uh, the mind is the software that the brain runs. The brain is kind of like the chip. Um, okay. And what the mind is, is the software that the brain is running. Okay. So if the mind is the same thing as a computer, then there should be no reason why we, in principle, shouldn't be able to create something that is conscious out of silicon. Okay. One of the things that we like to do is when we try to figure out 
what would happen in certain cases is we like to run simulations, right? Right now there's a bunch of simulations running in terms of epidemiology, right? We will run these simulations to say, well, if this virus has this much, you know, if, it, if it's uh, fatal at 0.15% of the population and it has a transmission rate of this, what will happen if it starts here and mm -hmm. then people have this much interaction, right? right. And, you know, one Monte way- Carlo simulations. Yeah, and, one way we can run those simulations is, you know, we could assign students to act like agents and do it in the courtyard, right? But that's really hard to do and you have to get a bunch of students to do it. Yeah. What we really like to do is to you do have that- to pay them too much pizza. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one of the things that computers enable us to do is to run these agents right. as software. Okay. So, as our ability to compute increases, and as the cost of computing decreases, our ability to run simulations skyrockets. Yes. We can run all Water kinds of simulations. Hours and hours and lots of electricity running computers doing a zillion iterations of something or other. Yeah. Now, at some point in the future, we might want to kind of run a simulate. We might say, I wonder how humans acted way back when there was only this many people or whatever, right? <laughs> so we might run a simulation with software agents acting as humans uh, okay. in the software, right? I'm starting to suspect where this is going. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's great to have these agents in the software who are supposed to be representing us act kind of like we do. The ideal, of course, would to have would be to have software agents that act, you know, exactly like humans do. And if there ideal is ideal in the sense of achieving whatever the objectives are of that simulation, or the, if we want the uh, simulation to model, to model or something, you know, uh, the way we live, we would want this, these software agents to perform exactly like we perform. Be before we got, you said two premises was the philosophy of the mind was that the the software is the mind, the brain is the hardware. Was that the two premises, or did we have another premise to get to? Uh, so one of the premises is that the mind is essentially a computer, right? Yeah. And that's the software-hardware thing. Okay. The second is that our ability to compute is going to increase oh, that in the, the future. Okay. okay. Increasing ability and decreasing cost or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Now... If the mind just is a computer, and if we are going to be able to increase the amount of simulations that we will be able to run, there is no reason in principle why we won't be able to run simulations at some point where the agents inside that simulation will themselves be conscious. Okay. That just follows from those two premises. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, whether the first premise, yeah, okay. I was, I, I was holding back my yeah. tongue here on getting into some sort of, I don't know, creation argument or something else. But anyway, okay, yeah, okay, so gotcha. So at some point in the future, so if we are this kind of civilization A, then at some point in the future, we are going to be able to run a bunch of simulations, I mean, we won't just run the one simulation, right? Since the cost of computing will be so cheap, uh, we'll want to run a ton of different simulations. You know, yeah. we'll run. You know, what if uh, had Napoleon done this? What would have happened differently? Mm -hmm. So, and each of these will kind of be their own standalone universes with versions 
uh, with conscious agents inside their own causal universes, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it'll actually be even crazier than that because we will want to run software simulations where the agents in the, each of those simulations can also run simulations. Right? <laughs> okay. So, what follows is that now we're going to have an infinite number of simulation universes mm-hmm. spawning from one original universe, right? the real one or whatever, right? Okay. Now, what Somehow evidence... Back to the Future, like the tail comes around and circles back and whips the original in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's even weirder than that, right? Okay. Uh, it's not like these the people in each of these simulations think, well, I'm in the simulation one, right? Each of them. Yeah. So the question is, what evidence do we have that we are in universe A, right? The original universe. The only evidence we have is that we seem to be conscious, and that is true of every single one of these simulated universes. True by assumption, but... Well... Not true by assumption, it follows well, from our it follows assumptions, from right? Well, it follows the assumption. Uh, okay. So, the argument then is that if these two premises are true, then we are, we are almost certainly living in a simulation. Okay. Since we have no way to discriminate whether we are in the first universe from right. one of the other ones, and the odds are one out of a thousand or whatever, right? So, here's why I think this argument is interesting. This is actually, I mean, if you listen to Bostrom talk about it, he says, you know, this argument actually, when I laid it out to a friend of mine, he uh, immediately changed from an atheist to an agnostic. (laughs) Okay. Because if you are living in one of the simulated universes, there is a very real thing that is essentially God for your universe. Right. There was a creator of some sort. <laughs> yeah, right. There was a creator. So, so we have a weird argument that starts from completely atheistic, materialistic, mind as a computer mm-hmm. uh, premises and ends up with there is def- there is almost certainly a creator for your universe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which is weird. Right. Now, the question is whether the premises are true, right? Yeah. Or whether the argument's valid, whether it does, the conclusion does follow from those premises. Yeah. Yeah, so, so yeah, the mind and the brain, to me, to make that analogous to the software, my immediate thought is that a mind created the software. So to say that the software is like the mind is a little bit of a chicken-egg concept, I think. I mean, software was created. So if we take a argument-by-design type of thing, we can say, wow. Whoever figured out how to make this computer program do this and whatever to, you know, whatever a phone coming to life with something or other, whatever the software is behind this, that doesn't look like trees and air. That must have been man-made. Somebody made that, right? So it was created. So then to say that, so a mind created the software, and again, this is back to kind of an intelligent design argument, but then how can we say then that it's just the software is the mind? 
Does that make sense? My chicken and egg concept then? <laughs> I don't quite get it. Okay. I admit, no. Well, I mean, the, the software, where did it, where did it come from? So, which is kind of what we're arguing with, like, where did the mind come from or how did we exist? And so we're, I, I see the theistic element with, we must have been created by something, but a, I don't see where he jumps into the argument saying the software, but maybe I'm missing something. If we, it's like we're assuming the computer and the software exists. So with that little cliffhanger, I will put that to Dr. Clark after the break. We'll be back in a few seconds. The Gortney Institute is seeking a graduate assistant. Earn your MBA with full tuition by participating in fun and impactful events. For more information, check out the Gortney Institute website. To ask a question for our mailbag, send us an email at info at or call us at 785-248-2522. Thank you, Dr. Clark. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Justin or Russ today. Welcome back. So um, my little brain was trying to figure out some sort of analogy to software and uh, I don't know, it wasn't quite working for me. So I threw a question to you, Justin, to help me, help me try to reason through this guy's argument a little bit more. So one of the things that this argument is typically, I think, seen as depending on is this view in the philosophy of mind called functionalism. Okay. Yeah. And functionalism is the view that what makes something a, a mind that is conscious is what it does. So what makes a computer a computer is what it does, right? We can create a computer out of a bunch of different things, right? Yeah. Um, now the question is, can we do that with a mind? So we know, we know how to make a mind. You've done it. I have. I've done it. <laughs> you mean my mind that I have that I'm culturing and nurturing? No. Oh. I mean your son. Oh, my son. Oh, that mind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. We know how to make minds. It's, I guess, yeah. It's a messy process. And, <laughs> Sometimes uh, fun. Yeah. Parts of it, anyway. Yeah. So <laughs> we know how to make what John Searle would call Meat machines, <laughs> machines that can think. We know how to make machines that can think. We just don't necessarily understand okay. uh, exactly how those meat machines that we create, <laughs> how that results in something like consciousness. Okay. Um, so 
this is kind of the Turing test of uh, whether or not a machine is thinking is whether or not if you are interacting with a machine after a certain amount of time, if you can't tell the difference between that machine and a human being, oh. then we can say that that machine thinks, right? Okay. Now, there are a I'm number... I'm thinking it's more complex than that, but uh, yeah. So the functionality part is that if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Exactly. Okay. And Not that sure is the... credit to that folks uh, yes, that's what some philosopher from, from functionalism yeah. at some point. <laughs> I'm sure either, you know, Fodor or Putnam said something like that at one point. They were both very plain spoken and, uh, and argumentative. Now, there are problems with functionalism, but it seems to be the kind of approach that we would want to take when we figure out if, if, other, if other things in the natural world have minds, we act, well, do they act like they have a mind? Okay, how about, so part of the definition then wouldn't, I'm thinking um, part of what I would think as a mind as a non-philosopher would be somewhat path-dependent or history-dependent. Like it walks like a duck, walks like a duck, and I know that it came from another human being and so it is a mind, like instead of a, a robot sitting in front of me, maybe before I could verify that that's a mind, I would have to check to see if it, if this thing had a mom or whatever, some sort of history, like some path dependence as part of it having the qualities of a mind. Is that going too far that that, that could be some of the properties that are part of a mind? It's a very interesting approach. So another way to... Th- to answer that question might be like, well, think about if aliens landed, right? And we want to figure out, are they, are they minds or not? And mm. we go, well, they, they didn't descend from humans. And they say, hello, Russ, we would love to share with you the stories of our culture. <laughs> and you go, you know what? I think I'm going to barbecue them alive and eat them instead. Cause they're obviously not minded creatures. They didn't descend from humans. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't think you would do that. You might say something like, well, they seem to act like they have minds. That one I've got barbecuing right now, he's screaming. Right? <laughs> he acts like he's in pain. Maybe he's in pain. Maybe right? he is a mind of some sort. Yeah. So. Okay. All right. All right. But then we have the question of if you design a robot. Right. Yeah. And it says, hey. Ow. You're burning me or something. Yeah, or I've had, you know, Siri tell me to stop being rude before, right? Uh, Seriously? Yeah. Really? <laughs> like if your voice intonation goes up or you're short with her or, or something? Or I use you know? language that I shouldn't be. You know? Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, if you are rude to Siri, she, it, will uh, <laughs> will reprimand you in some cases. Huh. Um, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Is Siri angry at me? Yeah. Okay. So it seems... It seems like functionalism does work in some cases, like, or we are apt to use it in some cases, like the aliens landing case. We see if they function like things that are in pain yeah. and that have minds. I, I can um, also see as human beings, we, we may be too quick to put certain properties towards something without maybe thinking about, oh, it's much more complex than that. Like, like you said, like Siri, you know, is, does Siri feel for me? Like she sounded really 
serious when she said, you hurt my feelings or, you know, whatever, some programmed response. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like as humans, we might put too much to say, yep, series of mind. But in reality, we just haven't really done our homework. We haven't fully thought about all the complexity of it or something. Yeah. My favorite Ikea commercial ever was played this really sad music and had this lamp that somebody put out on the curb and the lamp looked up and saw a new lamp in the window, you know, and it's like really depressing music playing. And then somebody came on the screen and said like, why are you, why are you feel sorry for this lamp? It has no feelings. You're crazy. New stuff is better. Get new stuff. You know? <laughs> uh, yes, we tend to so we anthropomorphize for sure. Yeah. But the other side of that is, well, suppose we are able to run these simulations, right? And it sure seems like these software agents in the simulation are acting like they have feelings. Shouldn't, I mean, is it bad? Would it be bad to torture a bunch of them? Because since they're software, we know they can't have feelings. Or should we maybe uh, take the precautionary approach and say they do have minds and therefore we ought not Well, since we're on the uh, anniversary of Auschwitz, you're kind of making me think of just the opposite where we've taken humans with minds and said, no, they're not humans or they're not minds or whatever. Some sort of, you know, something that can be discarded or not worried about or thrown in the trash can. So, yeah. There's a, there's so, a long history of us, of groups of humans treating other groups of humans as if they had no minds felt, even felt no pain. Yeah. Um, yeah. And. So that's another element to this too, which kind of you're, dehumanizing some people or humans have been found to be able to dehumanize other people. Yeah. So uh, what I think you're correctly pointing out is that a whole lot depends on that first premise of the argument, right? Whether or not the brain, whether or not functionalism is true. Mm -hmm. um, and so there have been some classic arguments against functionalism, which are like, would take a whole nother, podcast to get into because they are themselves thought experiments. Okay. Well, that might be a future uh, one. Okay. But, uh, so there seem to be some classic what are, what are uh, argued to be knockdown arguments against functionalism, which are typically called the absent qualia argument. Okay. Where qualia just means uh, yes, I definitely the feelings, okay. uh, the, the way something feels from the inside. So, like, there's pain. It's like pain as you feel it from the inside. That's qualia right, or qualia. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it should be part of your feeling, your emotions. Your, it's something internal that you maybe can't even put into words or something. Too. Yeah, or, you know, but somebody could be screaming, right, but faking it. And then that's because mm -hmm. the, the qualia isn't there or whatever. The, ah, okay. Does that make the, sense? The, tru the truth isn't there. The true pain or well, whatever or something. The subjective quality of pain. Okay. Right? Okay. Um, yeah, that's the uh, old, what's your pain on a scale of zero to 10? People who have, might have the same qualia, <laughs> one says a 10 and one says a three or something. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. That, that Maybe that's on the receptors of something with the mind anyway in there okay. yeah and okay. the answer is always you know can you just give me the good pills <laughs> <laughs> yep all right so where does this faith so um maybe to wrap this thing up a little bit for today anyway 
if we bite into this guy's premise and uh, the, the logic and we end up having the possibility that we're in some universe of N universes, where does that leave us? Well, I think this argument should actually make atheists nervous. <laughs> okay. In the kind of strong affirmative atheist disposition where we're not talking about agnostics, we're talking about people who say, I believe that there is no God. Because yeah. right? what we have here is an argument starting from atheistic premises, which ends up saying it's almost certain that you are. So, the, yeah, expand on that a little bit more. So the, basically the atheist premise that you're talking about is that, yep, where the mind, uh, this consciousness is just like software and the, and the brain is hardware. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Well, like the atheist that? premise is that in the original universe, right, we make no appeal to, to a god or a creator or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Maybe it is the case that for that original universe, there is also a creator. Mm -hmm. But even if there's not, even if that original universe is the Sam Harris <laughs> pure, or not even Sam Harris, because he can be a bit of an idealist at points, but even if the original universe is the pure materialist, just particles bouncing around in the void, unplanned chaos. Big bang, unplanned chaos, amounted into yes. life type thing. Every single other universe has a creator. Oh, right. Right. So for every single other universe, there is a creator, and you are almost certainly in one of those universes. And that multiverse thing, this argument is different from, but that is the idea that it even if life is so improbable, this is somewhat an atheist argument, I think, right? Is that even if life is super improbable, but if you have that simulation or that roll of the dice that only would happen one out of one zillion times, it would potentially happen and it happened to us and that's where life came from. Uh, is that right with that? Or am I, I, think, am I, I think confusing the, a couple things? I think there's a couple things going on. So one of, it depends on which kind of multiverse argument you're talking about because there's like the multiverse interpretation of quantum mechanics where every time a measurement is taken a new universe branches off and there are just a bunch of different multiverses mm -hmm. but it sounded like and those yeah those are the ones that are going on simultaneously i guess simultaneously and and uh, i think the argument that the one that i'm thinking of is like none of those other ones go on. Like it would have never happened, the bouncing around, but then just one special time it happened or something, I thought. Um, even ring a bell, I can be mixing up some other podcasts that I listen to. You might be talking about stuff. like what Lawrence, Lawrence Krauss had a book called The Universe from Nothing, where he says, I can explain how our universe uh, arose from just whatever it is, quantum, quantum fields, the quantum, uh, the, fields. the quantum field equations. Okay. And so I don't have to presuppose anything and I can explain how they how the universe arises just out of the quantum field equations. Okay. And the best reply ever was a review by David Albert, who's a PhD in physics and philosophy. And he goes, you had, you just, you didn't explain how it came from nothing. You explained how it came from the quantum fields. That's. Ah, okay. So to wrap this thing up then, so, this doesn't sound very biblical 
if it was correct. If we have uh, some, we're basically some sort of creation argument, but not specifying a creator. And, and so in the Judeo-Christian tradition, we've got God who calls into existence an earth. I'm not one of those that uh, thinks that the earth is necessarily, uh, I got to be careful how I word this, I guess. Um, the evolution versus creation sometimes says, well, we've got scientific evidence that this mountain is 4 million years old. So there goes the old Christian's argument of it. It's really only six to 8,000 years old. And so my pushback to that, that I had a buddy, I don't know where he heard it from, but he said, uh, nobody really, no Christian really believes that. Like Adam was a baby and grew up to be a man when, when we look at the creation story of God creating Adam, right? God created a man. That man was existing as if he was a baby who grew up. He has all the anatomy and all the biology of as if he was a baby. And so if that's how God called creation to order, why wouldn't he just call a mountain into order that looks like a mountain that's been there for 4 million years, but he just called it into existence. And so that's kind of the argument that I've hung my hat on to marry up maybe some science with age and, and uh, some sort of creation uh, that is following the biblical narrative. So have you got any thoughts on that? I mean, the thing about that argument is that it's completely un unfalsifiable. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Here, here's the only here's the only part that, again, using reasoning, you can maybe hang your hat on. Go back to Jesus, and Jesus claims to be the Son of Man. Uh, Jesus is Lord. He claims so. He's either liar lunatic legend or lord so he's either one of those four l's right so uh the jews of course didn't believe he uh, rose from the dead and and uh uh or certainly he he died but he didn't he didn't rise and the uh muslims actually believe he really didn't die and so and then there's people who might think oh that was just a crazy guy you know that was a magician so that's the whole legend lord or legend, uh, lunatic, those arguments. So, but if a person actually comes to believe that Jesus was a man who existed and he is Lord, he in his ministry, there's good historical evidence and documents points back to the Old Testament. So him validating the Old Testament is the, about the closest reasoned argument that I think there is of the validity. And so, yes, I still agree with you from a maybe a technical standpoint, unfalsifiable, but if you come to the point where you be, believe in Jesus as Lord, then it's like, why would he lie about this? <laughs> right? He points back to the Old Testament and doesn't overturn it. And so maybe there's something there. So that, uh, that would be where I would be at on, on that. I'm not sure how that exactly ties in. That, that, that I thought I would just spin that into you know, whether some of these premises or not were there and, and the existence of multiple uh, computers. Uh, and Well, the problem about that last one is that it would seem then that if you find things in the Old Testament that you, 
that seem wrong, that's a counterexample, right? Now, what we can say is, well, we want to read those parts of the Old Testament as more metaphorical, and I'm fine with that, but then why not read more of the Old Testament than metaphorical, which... uh, Yeah, no, it it does uh, certainly come down to faith, ultimately. So we do not have any hardcore scientific evidence. It's faith and grace in God that uh, that you need that helps us uh, get through these uh, mental obstacles that are that are challenging us from day to day so so all right well that looks like a good place to wrap any last last comments are you good nope all right well on behalf of the gordon institute here at ottawa university thank you all for listening if you like what you're hearing uh be sure to give us a five-star rating help us rise through the ranks and uh other than that be fruitful multiply thanks (laughs) 